Welcome to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host this week, Liz Flora, and today I'm joined by the co-founders of new body care startup, Soft Services. First, we have co-founder and CEO, Rebecca Joe. Rebecca, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me, Liz. And we also have co-founder and chief creative officer, Annie Kriegbaum. Annie, great to have you here. Thanks, Liz. We're so excited. So you launched Soft Services in May 2021. It's been almost a year But for the audience, if they haven't heard of it yet, do you just want to give a quick overview of the concept of the brand and what it's all about? Yeah, so Soft Services, we actually started working on it back in 2019 um, when Rebecca and I were both consulting at the time. And we really wanted to get back into the beauty space, but... Um, you know, we've both been in and out of beauty for 10 years now. I am, we actually met back at Glossier. Rebecca was like the second full-time Glossier hire. I was the editorial director at Into the Gloss, which, you know, kind of um, was the first like community which sprang <laughs> Glossier. Um, uh, and we met, so we met there. Um, we're always like, we had like a great working relationship and really were able to do a lot of like innovative, cool stuff. Um, in terms of like evolving D2C beauty while working together at Glossier and, you know, our working lives like kind of had us working together again back in 2018, 2019. And um, we had worked, you know, in a lot of different fields, especially Rebecca from like fashion to like natural wine to hemp <laughs> to um, any sort of like kind of new D2C industry. Like we kind of had our hands in it. Um, but beauty is what we're really passionate about and a space that we really care about. But we also are, we're trying to be more conscious creators as well as consumers. And so it felt like, you know, every time you open Instagram, there's a new brand, like there's a new beauty company launching and, you know, what, what could we possibly do to make a better lipstick or make a better, like even like brow wax, there's probably like 30 of just brow waxes alone now to choose from. And so we felt like, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't really add to the space until one day we realized, um, we were just talking as friends, like recommending products to each other. And, we were both like, we'd both just turned 30 or we're about to turn 30. And we were actually talking about back knee, <laughs> um, just breaking out like on our backs and like bodies because I think like summer was coming up. And, you know, I, I guess I thought when, when you turn 30, if you were to ask like a six year old me what a 30 year old would be wearing, it would be like a button down shirt from theory and like a, a suit to work every day. But I want to wear like halter tops all the time now and like backless dresses. I don't think that that's, you know, millennials are going to, suddenly mature or into wearing, you know, more covered up clothes. And I was like, wait, why, why is body acne the one thing that like I haven't figured out as a beauty editor and like all of my like years doing this. And so we started pulling on that thread and um, just thinking back to like my days as a beauty editor at Into the Gloss or Exo Jane, Exo Vein, like all the articles that really took off organically were um, bodies or articles around like niche body skin concerns. And so we made like a, no, um, we made a post-it note board of like all these skin concerns. And then we did like what I would do as a beauty editor where you go into Google trends and you see like, are these search terms even rising? You know, we kind of had an idea just from being like really tapped in on Reddit and, um, you know, Rebecca was like, you know, it's like all the, at the time was like really into TikTok skincare and like could kind of, you know, see what conversations were bubbling up. And we definitely saw that a lot of people were searching for these things and they were ending up nowhere in terms of both education, like content and products. Um, you know, some of these things like topicals, like can't, 
can't help with, but um, a lot of them they can. There can there are topical solutions um, if people would just make them. So we were like, let's let's do it. No, you know, let's strike while the, while the iron's hot. No brand is doing targeted body skincare, and that that is how soft services came to be. Amazing. And where are you guys based right now? And where is the brand based? We're in New York. We're in New York. Just like everyone else, we've had to figure out some like remote work kind of solves, but now we're comfortably in New York. That's where our office is. Yeah. As a brand that launched during the pandemic, what are your thoughts on remote work? Like, do you think you'll do like a standard office or what are you thinking? I mean, it's funny because we make physical products. You know what I mean? So I, it's, we definitely see all the conversations happening. And I know companies, a lot of companies have, you know, a lot of layers to them and different teams could probably be more successful working remote than others. But at the end of the day, we make physical products. So there does have to be some sort of physical home base. Um, uh, you know, you have five people needing to review a sample. And if so-and-so is here one day, but they're traveling to their mom's house the next to work remote, it's like, it's very, you know, confusing and disorganized. And we just don't have the resources to organize that kind of remote work environment in like a really productive way. But um, we're definitely experimenting and evolving. I mean, Rebecca, what are your, where are you at yeah. right now with that? I feel like we have a home base and we always will, but then um, the kind of day-to-day is slightly more flexible in terms of hybrid and you know, kind of allowing, I think we've all been working remotely for long enough to understand like what is the most effective way for any of us to work. And then we've been lucky that our team um, worked really well together and certain teams, you know, yeah, are able to work really well um, together and also figuring out ways to work well on Zoom. But it's definitely an interesting challenge. Um, I feel like not only remote work, but email and Slack and Zoom, there's a lot of trying the new technology and then kind of figuring out what works for each person individually, but also what works best for um, the organization given its size. For the founding story, uh, Rebecca, since Glossier, you went on to work with brands in a wide range of D2C categories, and most recently you were in fashion. So what brought you back to beauty? Um, Yeah, that's such a great question. I think at the end of the day, like Annie was saying, like beauty is where almost like our personal and professional interests um, collide. Um, Like I've always loved beauty growing up, um, like stealing my mom's makeup when I was a kid, like paying my sister, like I would give her like a quarter to let me like do her hair on the weekend. Um, so it's just something that's always been interesting to me being a dancer. (laughs) You paid her. Yeah. Because she hated, she hated like that. I wanted to do her hair, but I was like, please, I just want to like curl your hair. Um, and we were both dancers. And so I'd always like do her makeup and I do my own makeup. So yeah, it was, it's been something that's like always been an interest of mine growing up. I've done like friends makeups at weddings. Um, and I think Annie and I were, we just kept coming back to beauty. Like when we meet up and hang out, we talk about beauty products. We also talk about the industry, like Kim Kardashian's launching body makeup. What do we think about that? Have you tried it? You know, what's the business strategy here? And um, yeah, I think this is this really interesting area where we're just like naturally interested in it, but also have been in the industry for a really long time. And so kind of know um, the business side as well. It seems like a ton of Glossier alums have been starting brands. Annie, your co-host of your podcast, which is great, by the way, check it out, everyone, if you have it. Your co-host, Nick, founded Necessaire. There's Amy Collet. There's Arfa, um, which has since been rebranded. So 
when you guys were at Glossier, did you have the idea of like, oh, I could do this? Or did the idea to start a brand come later? Was it starting in your head? Um, I think I was so lucky at Glossier because I my position allowed me so much power and ownership, to be honest. So it kind of felt like, until it didn't, it felt like my thing. Like it felt like my you know, like I was, I really was able to put my DNA into what we were doing and, you know, um, got to come up with a lot of the products and named everything. And it just felt, I felt like I was really able to, um, you know, put my stamp on, on things there. So I didn't have the, the urge to really like start something for myself, but I was definitely taking note of, cause my, my role there was actually, I, I came up with the product ideas um, and like set the product calendar. I mean, of course, there's a huge team um, doing that. There's a product development team that, of course, like came up with ideas as well. But, you know, Emily and I would probably like once a quarter sit down and say like, okay, out of all these ideas, you know, what, which ones are we going to actually make and what's the story arc to our brand and how is it going to roll out over time as we launch a new product? And I would definitely take note of like, oh, why aren't we doing that? And what's the logic behind that? Okay, I'm going to see how that actually plays out in the end. And so it was kind of this like test and learn opportunity for me and we did actually launch body at glossier and it wasn't targeted it was really innovative like the formats and it had a beautiful scent it was like the it was the body hero line um and i i remember being like this is great but and i do remember more more conversations around more targeted body care as well there but ultimately the strategy was more people are interested in buying like a basic or like an everyday like body wash and like a scented scented body care because that's what the body category was really dominated with. We Rebecca and I are always like it was hygiene or hair removal or moisturization. Moisturization. So it's like um, that was kind of the whole body category in a nutshell. Um, and one strategy is, oh, if we can take a piece out of that, that's really great for our business, which is true. And then our strategy now with soft services is let's actually expand the category and create our own piece of that pie, you know, so, or actually make the pie bigger. <laughs> and then we'll take a big chunk of that, that big piece. So, um, so yeah, that's definitely, it definitely like impacted what we're doing now. Um, and Rebecca and I, while we were working together um, over the first like, what, year and a half of, of Glossier or before it launched because Rebecca was like responsible for all the digital like going into launch and, and afterwards and uh, while we were working together we definitely like set a lot of the like playbook for how the brand like grew off of like in terms of what was going on digital what, what we were doing with digital marketing um, how we were able to like engage with the customer and like bring them in even to like the product development process and then market that story um, and so we really like that was really where we cut our teeth and um, we're definitely applying a lot of like what we learned to soft services. So you guys have three million in seed funding, which is a big accomplishment for a brand just starting out. Do you think your experience in the D2C world helped make those connections with VCs or how is the process of fundraising? Yeah, so I was going to add to the, um, you know, us starting a brand question. Um, so actually, after I left Glossier, I started a brand called Off Hours with my husband, which is a like home 
like wear brand, I guess, um, we sell a product called the Home Coat, which is a comforter cover meets a robe. And that business we um, bootstrapped, self-funded, and today it continues to kind of cash flow itself. And it's really successful, but it's like a really lean operation. And through that, I think for me, having worked at Glossy and consulted with all these like larger brands, whether they're traditional companies like Diamond from Fustenberg or startups that had the more VC-backed funding, whether it was a Glossier or a Bark Boss could really, um, and then I had the experience of my own bootstrapped funding. I think coming into soft services, Annie and I were super intentional about what is the business, what is the vision, what is the exit strategy, and what resources we need to invest in from day one. And I think a part of that being in beauty, like you, you know, need to be able to really invest in product development, or at least for us, if we're going to make really innovative products. And from an operational perspective, really being able to deliver customers experience that ultimately for us to be competitive with other um, companies, we knew that we would need partners from an investment perspective to really build the company in the way that um, would set it up for success. Different than off hours, like in fashion, it's it can be much easier to kind of bootstrap and kind of, you know, build the business more slowly that way. Um, and I think we Given our experience, not only in D2C, but with various businesses, I think we had a really strong vision of like, how would we build this company and how could we build a billion dollar business? I think we really believe that there's a billion dollar business to be built in body skincare, specifically, as Annie was talking about, in creating, expanding this category versus just creating an alternative to what already exists on the market. And that gave us the confidence to go and and actually ask for the money. You know, I think it's like raising money is one thing, but for us to say we can deliver on this promise that we and this vision that we're kind of setting off to accomplish um, was something that like for us. The timeline was we started talking about the business in the summer of 2019. We didn't convince ourselves to start working on it full time until the January of 2020. Then we didn't raise seed funding until October of 2020. So it took a long time for us to get to a place where we felt really confident to go out um, and actually fundraise. And, you know, also knowing what would that money be going for and what would we be want to prove by the time that that money ran out. So it was interesting that, Annie, you mentioned millennials when you were pitching it, did you have a specific target demographic in mind in the pitch deck where you were saying this is a millennial focused brand or is it broader than that? Well, we always say that soft services is problem solution. So rather than so whenever like the demo question comes up, we're kind of like we want whoever comes to our brand like to feel to not be turned off at least <laughs> and at best like be really excited and think it's great and that we're going to solve the con- skin concern that they have um and so that's kind of not to go on a tangent but that was like our brand- our approach to branding as well we kind of call it elastic branding so rather than have you know brand a set of brand guidelines that we like repeat every time we launch a new product or like um to you know design new packaging um you know, even just like one color that represents soft services, we um, we were like, let's not do that. Let's make every um, piece of packaging and every campaign feel very like new and fresh so that the branding and design behind like the product really tells like the best story of that product versus like it attracts a specific demo. Um, and so, but millennials, though I will say (laughs) we are the most familiar with this category right because we are millennial women um and that was I think like the a lot of the success at Glossier was like it was the people that were using the products and creating the products 
um, are we're one and the same. Um, and I think what I'm seeing already, even like in going out and, and fundraising um, or talking with press and things like that, they're always like, well, what's your plan for Gen Z? And I'm like, well, what, why? Why are you asking me that? <laughs> like, what, what about millennials and all these people, like, ab above millennials? Like, they're still here. Um, millennials especially are this, like, really incredible group that has been, that buys things online and doesn't question it. I mean, it, there's no, like, there's no learning curve for them to seek out what they want online and spend money on it. Um, and so why are we, why are we putting them on the back burner in favor of, like, the, just a younger generation just because they're they're younger. Um, millennials have like a ton of money. They're right, like they're doing better in their careers, um, and they're they're going through. For us as as a body care company, they're also like going through changes that they weren't dealing with in their twenties. So like they're seeing the effects of sun damage. They're having kids. They're like seeing like um, you know their skin is just like evolving as like time goes on. If you want to call it because of aging, great. Like like I. I see these, some of these things are due to aging, some of them are not, but, um, but anyway, I think millennials like are, 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 the, are such a powerful group for body care because they are expecting solutions that they can do themselves first versus going directly to the dermatologist or like the plastic surgeon even if you're talking about the body category. Um, they're like, they're, they're trained enough to know like there's something else out there and like I can do research and like and try some topical solutions in between. Um, and so I think it's like it would be such a shame if brands forget about <laughs> millennials in favor of Gen Z. Um, and we really want to be the brand on like the other side as like millennials start getting older and they have all these options for face, but they're like, wait, what's going on with my body? Like, I really need to start thinking about that. Yeah, it's interesting. Just as millennials started getting some spending power, it seems like the industry has shifted its focus totally to Gen Z. Do you think there's too much emphasis on Gen Z these days? Uh, I would say probably so, um, especially because I see brands that are so... Um, I, I, I always... I feel like sometimes like I see founders or, or brands just think like what else is out there rather than like going deeper in what they're really good at. Um, and so if you already have such a strong core in a millennial audience, um, unless you're really confident that like you want to expand beyond that because you've like totally saturated that like group, which I don't know if that's even possible, but um, like why not why not keep engaging them like why not keep rewarding that group that that is is your brand um and so I, I do see it's interesting um yeah like I said we were getting that question a lot in fundraising it's like what what was your plan for Gen Z how are you going to engage Gen Z um and I don't think that and we're not ignoring them by any means but I think like we I, we're, we're definitely not losing sight of like the generations that came before and I think even older than older than millennials too. I mean, I think it's like you see all these heritage brands that are rebranding or trying like, you know, new and younger and cooler like marketing tactics, and like they're completely like alienating their their older customers at the same time. Um, so it's interesting. It's like again, like these people are still here and they're still really important, <laughs> and people are going to live longer than ever. So um, I think let's like ageism like. Let's not have it happen either way, you know? We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Let's talk about the product lineup. How did you guys select the first products in the collection? 
Yeah. So as Annie was saying, when we first started working on soft services, we did this like post-it note exercise of what are problems that we're having below the neck, our friends, our husbands, like our mothers that don't have solutions. And we kind of had maybe like 40 post-it notes. And then um, as we started to zero in on what would our product roadmap really look like, we started crossing that with what is the market size for each of these issues? How many people do these issues um, affect? What is the seasonality of the kind of these issues? Um, and yeah, just like through various forms of like qualitative or quantitative data um, to figure out like where are, what issues are like maybe like of the most need today. Um, and so we started by really zeroing in on, I would say like uh, keratosis pilaris and body acne as two main issues that we wanted to go out of the gate with. Um, and uh, so the smoothing set is like our, the products that we launched with, the buffing bar, the smoothing solution and the carrier cream, which would be, would be like the ultimate keratosis pilaris um, fighting solutions, but also those products, um, given that they're incredible exfoliants work for a variety of other issues. Um, ingrown hairs, strawberry skin, just general dry skin, which I would say I don't, there's no statistic on how many people are affected by dry skin, but I would say it's like 99.9999% are people are affected by dry skin. So it was really important for us to be able to make, I think it is important for us to make products that are very much so targeted, but also can like speak to um, a wide audience. Um, and so we started with keratosis pilaris, um, given that it's definitely an issue that we both have that a lot of our friends had that was being not really well served um, while being something that affects a large part part of the population. And then secondly, we targeted body acne with our clearing duo, which we have the clearing mist, um, which is a medicated um, breakout tonic that comes in a mist form. And then the clearing clay, which is like a um, wash off treatment. Body acne, as um, we talked about earlier, was like the re the like the spark that started soft services and we both um, deal with body acne. So that issue is like near and dear to our heart. And also an issue that I would say for me emotionally has always been um, kind of like entangled with kind of a bit of shame or embarrassment. And so it's really cool to kind of for us to be able to make solutions that actually work and have customers writing in like, I'm feeling super confident going into summer because I've been using the clearing products and, you know, I feel like I'm going to be able to show this certain part of my body. Yeah, and we've seen this explosion online in the past few years of skincare influencers talking more openly about their skin issues, talking about acne. Do you think that helped create an online environment that is easier to launch a brand like this? Um, I think yes. I think there. We definitely saw that trans that evolution in the conversation happened for face. Um, we attributed a lot to like the, actually the launch of like K-beauty in the U.S. and just like more targeted treatments and people um, approaching skincare as more of like a hobby and like a fun thing rather than something that's like very clinical or shameful in the case of like acne or rosacea. Um, and taking selfies and posting them online became so... Um, so commonplace and so I think like that um, we definitely saw that happen for face where like these more taboo subjects were suddenly like um, like kind of fodder for like content on day in and day out but for body we part of our strategy is we want that same evolution to happen for body we're definitely seeing like a lot of taboos still around the human body especially in the U.S. you know we it, it, the U.S. is so funny because it's so they can be, we can be so prude about the human body, especially like, um, uh, more, especially if it's not like glossed over and like 
perfect. And, you know, uh, I remember we, when we actually did the Body Hero campaign for um, Glossier, we bought the side of a building and um, they, this, this hotel that we bought the ad space from had, I won't like say her name, but they had a very famous mogul supermodel on the side of a building in like a string bikini in like a very suggestive way. And then we had our campaign, which was like beautiful women, not wearing clothes, not in a suggestive way or a sexy way. They looked sexy, they looked hot, but it wasn't meant to like read as like sexual. And the hotel denied it. Um, they wouldn't post it because they thought it was like vulgar as compared to this like intentionally vulgar ad that they had of this supermodel with like the crazy, insane, unattainable body you know, on the side of their building. So that it's just very playing into that weird taboo that we have in the US around the human body is something that we knew that we could be something that we do to our advantage. Um, but it is like a hill that we have to climb. And so that's kind of why in our in our branding and in our marketing, we try to we try to play into like sex cells and like this is fun and not we don't have to it doesn't have to be like a taboo subject um, to kind of help people be able to talk about this stuff more online because yeah, even in our own research, we're like, who, who are the like, I don't know, who are the back knee influencers? Like who are the KP influencers on Instagram? Cause it's funny. You can go on there and you can find acne, you know, acne positivity influencers and stuff. But the conversation really is still like um, focused around face for the most part. Um, I think there was like a lot of conversation around stretch marks specifically for body. But other than that, like body skin is still like very like kind of uncharted territory in terms of conversation online. And for us, we had a similar thing kind of happen to us. Not this, not a hotel telling us not to be able to run an ad, but honestly, Facebook or all the social platforms, um, when we have ads that it's basically showing someone using a soap bar in the shower, they're like, if it's too cropped in, they're like, no, 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 this is, this is inappropriate. But it's like, well, how else are we supposed to show someone using soap, but to like crop in on them using it in the shower. And so that's something that's definitely like Annie was saying, it's like a hill that we have to climb. Um, you know, for them, it's like a lot of it is about like, we need to show enough of the body so it's not super cropped in. But if we pull back so much, you can't really tell what product we're actually selling. And so that's something that we have to be super clever about. Um, or we showed we showed a couple actually in the shower oh, together. Yeah. And again, it wasn't vulgar at all. It was a very cute video. They were like helping each see. other put on the clearing clay. Yeah. 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 They were basically like helping each other. Yeah. Treat their back knee in the shower. And it was like very like sweet and innocent. There was no like new, there was no like nudity shown. Um, and they denied the ad. And they said it was like a sexual situation. And I'm just like, what? You have these like really cropped in hypersexual photos of like two people like making out with their tongues like wrapped around each other, like all over Instagram. But you, this like scene of two people showering together is like deemed too sexual, you know? Um, so it's kind of, it's, it is funny like where, where these lines and a lot of it is done through AI, right? Um, a lot of the monitoring of like content is done through AI. So it is, this, we're kind of like battling robots now <laughs> in order to get our content seen. And I think something else that we're excited by is just given that these issues are more taboo, the amount of content that exists on the internet is like so small. And within that inherently, like the um, inclusive nature of that content, it becomes more, it, it, that's just more challenging if there's only like five pieces of content online are those five pieces of content going to speak to everyone that has the issue? And so that's something that we um, have found 
uh, or it's been cool to see our audience basically really excited by things like on our mass index, um, which is like the content part of our website. We have this body gallery that shows the issues across various skin tones. Um, and where I think we're just trying to help pioneer, like creating more content and talking about these issues more and having more education so that anyone who is interested to learn more about what's going on with them can, you know, see someone that looks like them on the other side, just given that there's been less attention in the space, any content that exists online. Like if you were to Google keratosis pilaris and click on the image tab, all of the photos would be like white skin tones, um, just because there's few, very few people making that content. And so for us, it's, um, uh, that's like a part of what we're doing, which is like bringing more attention to the space and being really conscious as we make that content and education to really reflect anyone who might be having that issue. Yeah. And it's interesting that you brought up ads because in addition to the issues you guys are having, there's also the whole issue with the iOS changes and the fact that targeting is harder now, which is really a challenge for a lot of the D2C brands we've talked to. So what is your approach to marketing on social right now? Where are you putting your energy? What kinds of influencers are you working with? What platforms are you focusing on? On the data piece, I think that's like um, a really interesting um it, the timing of it is like we launched the week that all the iOS changes happened. So we never really had like a pre iOS set of data to compare against. Um, I think for us, what's great is we have always believed in like opt-in marketing, um, uh, which is like have our customers tell us any information they want to about themselves, their age, their skin tone, the issues that they have so we can better serve them. We'd rather send you two emails um, a month that speak to issues you have, then send you four emails a month and not know which two are going to be relevant to you. So we've always done that um, since day one, which is like asking customers any information that they're willing to provide and then personalizing the experience. So investment into more like first party data, which is, I guess, what like the nerdy marketing term would be right now. It's something that we are going to be continuing to do to kind of help us um, make content that's more relevant to customers, but also like that goes all the way upstream to helping us make more um, relevant products to our customers. Um, that's on the iOS side. I think on the marketing side, I need, if you want to take that, um, it's definitely interesting to think about how can we find the customers um, and meet them where they are without just targeting them through Facebook. Yeah. So we, like I mentioned earlier, we, in, just to validate like our initial hypothesis around like, oh, bo the body category is like, really important and worth expanding. Um, we we saw that there were no, not a lot of products to treat these um, skin concerns, but also there wasn't a lot of places for people to end up if they were searching for these things. So we um, invested actually at the same, after we, we spent like six months, four to six months researching um, ingredients and um, and, and just product, products for like the physical product development. And then you send your brief off to the lab and they kind of get to work. And then then we made a huge investment into content um, so that pe when people are searching for these things that they're ending up on um, like educational content about them. So, and we want like soft services to be, to be there both, um, you know, when they search, you know, ingredients to avoid when you have a KP, um, we'll be there with an article um, for them on like we have a part of our website called Mass Index, which is we kind of pitched it as uh, 
WebMD meets like a really chic beauty site that's like actually fun to read. Um, and so they'll end up on Mass Index. They'll learn all about it. They have like, there's information from dermatologists um, on there. It's written by like incredible beauty writers. Um, and, uh, and then we have a section of Mass Index that's um, photos of these skin concerns as well. So we'll meet them on Google Images too. Um, so really investing in like SEO um, or SEO optimizes redundant, right? Like so search engine optimized like content is was something that we did from the very start. You see like a lot of brands investing in like editorial or content kind of after the fact. And we thought that that was really important up front just because we did want to meet people where they're searching. Um, and then on the kind of bigger channel side, like we're doing, um, we have such a small team, so I'm kind of like one thing at a time. So we're really trying to... Um, you know, ramp up on Instagram. Um, TikTok is an interesting one because of the virality of it. I think something going viral on Instagram is so unpredictable now. Um, it's, you know, with with the way that they um, they show content to people, none of it's um, like linear anymore. It's much harder for something to go viral. But TikTok, it's like anything could go viral. <laughs> you know, it's like a, a bit of a luck of the draw, like lottery. Um, and I think that one is very interesting for us for that reason. Um, and so this category of like hacks or like treatments, a product that really works um, on TikTok. You don't you see, I mean, Glossy especially covers these stories all the time where it's like this, this product that went viral on TikTok is now sold out for like six months, which happens to some of my favorite products. I, it's such a shame when Gen Z discovers a millennial beauty product because the millennials can't get them anymore. <laughs> Yeah, totally. It's crazy how quickly things just blow up on that platform. So shifting gears, we have Earth Month coming up and Soft Services has really granular details on every part of the packaging on the site. How important is it to have this level of sustainability now? Is this table stakes or is this something that's still kind of niche? What do you guys think? I think it's um, well, we, we kind of approached like making this brand even from a sustainability standpoint. We didn't feel good launching a brand that had a ton of, that created redundancies within the industry. So like that's, that's ultimately like our way to be the most sustainable is just not create like duplicates of products that already exist that we can't improve on. Um, and then I think, yes, being sustainable, whatever that means is table, st table stakes. Now, I think we're going to see a lot of concern around greenwashing, a lot of like truthers around recycling, which is all fair to say. Like we, it's hard to track where, where things go when you put them in the recycling. It's hard to know everything's done like at a, at a city level, like versus a federal level or, you know, what, it's all very opaque to the consumer, like how much of a difference you can actually make. I think our approaches give consumers like as much information as possible so that they can feel good or at least informed about what they're buying and using. Um, we're, we're learning along the way too. Like we, going into this, we were like, we're gonna source um, pumps that are all made from one material so that they're recyclable. Like that's that's just what we're gonna do. That's it's like a no-brainer. And then of course once we try to do that, there's one company that makes them and they don't really work very well. They're constantly breaking. So how sustainable is that if we're having to ship people new pumps all the time? So we were like, okay, well we don't feel good about 50,000 pumps out in the world that are just gonna end up in the landfill when somebody's done with them. Um, 
you know, so we're shipping them separately and encouraging users to keep them. We're not the first company that's that's ever done that, but it just seems like the best solution right now. Um, and I think, you know, whether or not it keeps, um, b you know, billions of pieces of plastic out of a landfill, whether or not that even, like, makes a dent in, in helping us, like, create a better earth, um, I think it does at least make people take a beat and like think a little bit more about what they're buying and why. And I think ultimately as like consumers and as brands, that's where we need to like sit in terms of how we approach sustainability. It's like, does this product need to exist? Do I need it in my life? You know, we get, we're always having conversations around like, how do we feel about like some of these programs that help people that like lower the bar for people to buy the product, whether it's like an afterpay thing or like a blink to buy from Instagram shops or, you know, like these, these things that just make like this, like mindless con purchasing like easier. Um, we have a lot of debate around that because it's like, first of all, like not everybody needs every product that we make, right? These are targeted skincare solutions. So if if we market them and make them so easy to buy in such a way that like a lot of people are buying them and then getting them and then being disappointed because they didn't actually need them or it didn't work the way that they thought, then that's not a win for us as a brand. Um, but back to sustainability, yeah, we, <laughs> we, we're still learning about what it means to be a sustainable company. Um, and I think we're very hesitant to to say that like oh we're we're a green brand we we really want to exist in the world for a few years and be able to say oh we actually like did these things that you know we feel like made a difference versus let's go out of the gate saying like we're sustainable and we're doing everything as best as we can and you know we know all the best practices because there really aren't any best practices yeah it seems like people are kind of turning away from the zero waste concept or saying low waste or minimizing waste as opposed to straight up zero waste. Yeah, I think for us it's like Annie's saying is it's it's just complicated, right? Like you really have to look at your complete supply chain and then the life cycle of the product. And for us, it's like that's why we have all that recycling content on the website is to just try to set the customer up for success because yeah, sometimes I get a product and I don't even know how to recycle it or I recycle it and I didn't wash it out the right way and then it gets the plant and it's not going to be it's going to be tossed out again so I think for us it's just about like breaking down the problem and trying to like help our customer along the along in any way that we can um but it's not simple um and I think every day as we make more products and we exist as a company have a larger footprint we start to see more challenges of what you know what it means to be a sustainable company and also being still a small company like there are certain things that we can't invest in or that will take a lot of time um, but I do think that yeah like what we hope to do is to help the customer understand um, or just pass on that insight or that knowledge that we're we have insight that we um, have visibility into so that when you do see another brand that maybe is just saying sustainable you're kind of double clicking in and saying, okay, what do they mean by this? What part of their business is sustainable? Um, and I think Annie and I, like for better or worse, are people that like just keep pulling on a thread until on a thread until the whole sweater is like unraveled. Like we can't stop ourselves. Um, and so I think with that, just being like those, like we were saying in the beginning of the call, uh, the, sorry, in the beginning of this interview, um, like conscious consumers, conscious creators, this like tension of being both and asking those questions is leading us to um, a lot of interesting areas and in some places, places for us to be innovative and just making really small changes like the pump piece, um, like 
we're not the first for people to do it, but I think the way that we're educating the customer is making some inroads for people to rethink, oh yeah, all these pumps I've owned, like they all just go into the trash. Why am I getting a new pump every time I get a product? Um, so final question today, you guys are almost at the one year mark since the brand launch. Do you want to talk about what's in store, what you're thinking for the year ahead? Are you looking at retail partners? Can we expect anything like that coming up? What are you looking at in the product pipeline? Yeah, I mean, it's been really exciting to have like, you know, we made this business during COVID, which was basically like we weren't seeing anyone, not our friends and our family, let alone like anyone in the industry. So we worked on this business like kind of like underground. And then um, we kind of luckily launched around the time when vaccines started to become available. And so we've had now it's like eight months um, of being able to like, you know, exist in the real world, have real customers. And I would say the things that we are the most excited by is just customers um, coming, coming along the journey with us of wanting, of having these issues, wanting products that really work like, you know, our customer is one that is looking for an effective solution. And that's really exciting to us. Like, that's why they're coming to us. Um, where we're going from here is, I think, just continuing to do more of what we've already seen work, which is finding areas um, of opportunity um, from a product perspective, answering those unmet needs and um, delivering a customer that like complete experience um, of, you know, we're helping them solve the issue. They're understanding their issue better. They're really loving the product experience. Um, and we're creating a world that they're proud to be a part of and proud to share. We get, have a lot of customers, um, saying I gifted this to my mom or my brother or my sister or my best friend, or, you know, my aunt, I went over to her house and I brought one of the buffing bars. I think we're looking to kind of just build more of this kind of very sticky, um, experience with soft services, but at the core is always looking for areas where someone has a problem that they don't have any solution for yet today. Sorry. And then in terms of expansion, I think we're, um, for us, it's about meeting our customer where they are and, um, uh, not creating limits. Like Annie was saying in the branding, not making our brand limiting, um, but like actually appealing and inviting to other customers. So where soft services will be sold or where we're going in terms of product map is really guided by that. We're not trying to limit. It's like our um, company, you know, we're a care company. We're trying to bring that care as wide as we can. Um, and so, yeah, there's definitely some exciting expansion that we'll be getting into in the next like uh, 24 months. So you guys aren't looking at a D to C only model. Um, no, I think that's limiting to the customer. You know, if we want to we want to help as many people solve their body acne as possible. And if D2C only was the way to do that, that's what we would choose. But to, we don't believe that to be true today. Yeah, it's interesting how the industry has been changing. Obviously, Glossier just had its big news with its big layoff of a third of its staff and saying that they're kind of pivoting. They're interested in wholesale um, kind of pivoting away from this tech company kind of model. Is that where D2C is going now, where you want to get kind of retail partners and not have this very exclusive kind of online only model? I think for us, like, I think D2C is like a funny term um, that also means many different things to many different people. For us, it's about I think we are a D2C company, even if we do sell through other distribution channels. The idea of D2C is being really like 
informed about your customer and being informed by data and trying to have a two-way conversation with your customer so that you can best serve them with kind of going back to your question about like iOS and first party data. And so I think that, um, yeah, I think that like maybe D2C 1.0 or 2.0 took that from a very purist perspective that you could only build a business that you could understand your customer if you only sold through your own channels. I think today, um, we're looking to just think about that more holistically. Um, but at the end of the day for us, it's just really important to stay in like, in touch with our customer and, and understand them deeply because we think that that's the way to like make the most relevant products um, to market in the most relevant way. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I think it's interesting to see all these companies um, kind of changing their minds. I would say that also it's like, we're still, we're still like, I think there, you know, at any point in time, it felt like, Oh, the internet has already like been created and it will just always be, be this way. Like TikTok surprise everyone of like, oh, we thought that Facebook and Instagram was a world that we were to live in. And all of a sudden this new platform came out of nowhere to completely reshape what we were thinking about social media. I think e-commerce can is still very much in a nascent place. I mean, Annie and I talk about that a lot with marketing and e-commerce. It's like, we need to be constantly just be listening and seeing how the industry is changing and creating a strategy that allows us to be agile and whatever, wherever, whatever will allow us to best serve our customers where we're going to go. Um, and yeah, so like we can't, you know, it's hard for us to say what's going to happen in five years. And Glossy has been around for, it's their eighth year. I mean, yeah, a lot of changes in eight years. Um, and so it's exciting to kind of see how these players are shifting and changing and evolving um, as, yeah, the like landscape is evolving and how we're behaving as customers is very much so evolving. Well, that's good for my questions today, but we're really looking forward to seeing what you guys have in store for the next year. So everyone check out Soft Services. Did you guys want to plug anything else? Annie, I know you've got the podcast, which is great if everyone wants to check that out as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Check us out. We're, we're called Eyewitness Beauty. Um, we cover beauty news um with a pop culture lens uh and we um are on all the anywhere that you listen to podcasts i guarantee you'll find us i don't i don't do i don't personally put it there but somebody does i was gonna say um if you're interested in working in the beauty industry in a very innovative company um like follow us honestly, on LinkedIn or on social, because we're going to be expanding our team this year. And, you know, we're looking for extremely talented people that, you know, want to build and want to innovate um, across marketing, across finance, across, across operations. Um, so yeah, come join us. Um, and we'll be posting like any job openings that we have. Well, thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. Thank you so much for listening to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Tune in next week for another episode. And of course, if you haven't already subscribed, please hit that button.